seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. In January 2023, Constance Martin and her boyfriend, Mark Gordon, disappeared and went on the run with their newborn baby, Victoria. A nationwide search resulted in the sad discovery of Victoria's body, and the pair have now been charged with killing her, which they both deny. I'm Jack Hardy, a news reporter for the Daily Mail. I'll be in court every day, reporting the events as they happen. And I'm broadcaster and journalist Caroline Cheaton. Together, we'll take you behind the headlines, bringing you the evidence, witness statements and testimony from the Old Bailey in London. This is The Trial. Constance Martin and Mark Gordon. So after a few delays this week, we're back a day later than planned. More of that shortly, but we've got a lot to update you on today. Yeah, so on Friday, we heard more about the moment the police found the body of Victoria in a bag in a shed soon after the couple had been arrested. And we heard Mark Gordon say in his police interviews that Constance Martin would never harm a child. Today, we'll explain why their previous four children were removed from them by the family court. We'll hear that years before Victoria was born, the couple attempted to live in a tent with one of their other children, despite being told it was unsuitable for a baby. We'll also bring you the evidence that the couple regularly missed or avoided appointments with social workers. That they claimed to be travellers so they could be provided with a flat. And that Constance Martin was warned about the dangers of sleeping with her baby on more than one occasion. Welcome to episode 10, Alternative Lifestyle. So Jack, it's been a bit of a stop-start week this week and that meant that yesterday we couldn't record much of an episode because the jury hadn't heard very much evidence at the Old Bailey. Yeah, that's right, Caroline. So on Monday there was lots of legal arguments in court, which the jury weren't present for. Then on Tuesday morning there were more delays, so it was yesterday afternoon when we really got going in front of the jury again. So as you say, there wasn't very much we could update you on, which is why we decided to push the episode back to today. Now, for those of you who've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know that is the very nature of court cases. Things don't always run to plan for loads of reasons. And we can only ever report the evidence that the jury have heard. 
So we're going to start today, Jack, with the evidence from social services. Now, this is in relation to the couple's previous four children who were removed from them before Victoria was born. And we know that Constance Martin told police in her interviews that her desperation not to let that happen again with Victoria was the reason she was on the run and that she disagreed with the decision to remove the previous four children. Yeah, so we heard a lot from social services about this in a statement that's been agreed by the prosecution and the defence and that was read to the jury. Now, for legal reasons, we can't provide a huge amount of detail on certain points and the children are being referred to in court as child FF, child GG, child HH and child II. Essentially, this evidence goes back to around 2017 when Constance Martin went to hospital. She was pregnant with child FF and concerns were raised by the doctors and nurses who saw her because she'd not previously sought any antenatal care. She said she and Mark Gordon had been living in a camper van which was parked nearby. Now, as a result of her attendance in hospital, something called a national hospital alert was issued about the couple because social services had been subsequently unable to find them. This kind of alert is only instigated by the NHS when they suspect a pregnant woman needs protection or support. So Constance Martin next sought hospital treatment in the early stages of labour with child FF. She and Mark Gordon gave fake names, calling themselves Isabella O'Brien and James Aimer. She told the staff that she'd travelled from another part of the country to avoid her family and she spoke with a fake Irish accent. She said she was from the travelling community and that she'd been raised in a caravan. She also said she was no longer with the father of the child and that her family disapproved of a child being born out of wedlock. She said she'd never been to school or been registered with a GP and she didn't have an NHS number. She also told the staff that Mark Gordon was a friend, but he was not the father of the child. Yeah, so she said she didn't have anything with her for the baby and she gave birth to child FF under the assumed identity of Isabella O'Brien and still using that Irish accent. She told social services she'd been living in a caravan. It was only later that their true identities were ascertained after one of the social workers linked them to that nationwide alert. So when Constance Martin spoke to the social worker, she said she and Mark Gordon had been evicted from their flat and they'd been living in a camper van. She said they'd moved to get away from her family and then started living in a tent. She said she thought if they posed as travellers, they'd be given social housing. Although she said she was homeless and didn't know how she would meet the needs of her baby in her current situation, she also said she was capable and would arrange for housing and state benefits, but she'd yet to make any inquiries about any of that. And she was told it wasn't usually a quick process. And a social worker also explained to her that using fake names and living in a tent were concerning. So we heard they'd been living in this tent, which Constance Martin said had been her idea. She promised to engage with social services and said her child was her priority, and she said she had clothes and nappies for the baby. But she was told some baby grows and nappies are simply not enough for a newborn baby to be safe. Social workers advised her to get in touch with her family and find a house. She was told a court order would be sought if she were unable to find a suitable home for herself and the baby. So she took the social worker to the tent where she'd been staying so she could find some contact details on her laptop. And the social worker noted that it was a festival-style tent, not suitable for sleeping in during cold weather. She also said the tent was bowed under the weight of rainwater and smelled stale. There were also a number of black bin bags filled with clothes inside and outside, and the blankets inside were cold and damp. So the social worker spoke to Constance Martin about the unsuitability of living in a tent. And in a statement to the police, the social worker described the conversation. We left the tent behind. 
I spoke to Constance regarding the unsuitability and discomfort of their situation, namely living in a tent. I explained to her that it was winter, the conditions were freezing and the cramped space would be wholly inappropriate for a baby to live in. Constance responded that while it was challenging, they spent their days outside and only used a tent for sleeping at night. She made it clear that she and Mark had an alternate lifestyle and that different people had different ways of living. She asked me not to judge her for this. I emphasised to her that my primary concern was the well-being of child FF, especially given that Constance had initially planned to go into labour inside the tent and had no better plan for child FF after they arrived. I reassured her that I was not judging her, but my role was to assess and recognise the risk posed to child FF. At this point, Constance told me that it was her belief upon discharge, social services would have recognised her as a traveller and grant her support by the means of social housing. Constance was clear that their plan was to maintain the story that they were fleeing from domestic abuse and had read on the internet that there was an onus on social services to support persons in this situation. Now, what's called an interim care order was made and the baby was placed in a number of temporary mother and baby placements with Constance Martin. It was explained to her more than once that falling asleep with a baby on her posed significant risks because of the potential for suffocation, overheating and positional asphyxia. She was also told to put the baby in a Moses basket for sleeping rather than allowing herself to doze off with the baby on her chest. She promised to take the advice on board. Now, at another meeting, a social worker explained to Mark Gordon there were concerns about the lack of preparation for the birth of child FF. Now, he appeared to accept this, but said everyone has a right to choose how they live, and he felt they shouldn't be penalised or discriminated against because their lifestyles were not mainstream. So then, a supervision order was made, which allowed the couple to care for child FF under the supervision of social services. Now, a few weeks later, a health visitor said the baby was gaining weight and feeding well. He said Constance Martin was breastfeeding and developing a strong bond with the baby. She was also described as being loving and patient with child FF. So the couple then moved to a different part of the country and soon after, child Gigi was born. Now, it's around this time that the incident at the couple's house took place where Constance Martin appeared to fall from a window. Now, a family court judge would later conclude this was an incident of domestic violence and that around the same time, the parents had deliberately evaded an investigation by the local authority into the well-being of the children. So shortly after this incident occurred, legal proceedings were started with an application for wardship made by Constance Martin's father, Napier Martin. Care proceedings were also started by the local authority in relation to child FF and GG, and it was during the course of those proceedings that the couple's third child, HH, was born. An emergency protection order was made in relation to child HH, and it was decided the baby should be placed with Constance Martin in a residential assessment unit with Mark Gordon to join later. We also know that at some point the older children were placed in care and the couple were allowed to have supervised contact with them. So we were then told about Constance Martin's fourth pregnancy. This came to light when she self-referred to see a midwife because she was heavily pregnant again. Appointments were arranged for her to have an urgent antenatal scan, but she didn't attend. Instead, she emailed the midwife to say she decided to have a private scan and would email the results later. She was called by the midwives again and she said again she'd have a private scan and would email the results, but she never sent the results in. Now, a social worker then conducted an unplanned home visit to their house. Constance Martin was heavily pregnant with child I.I. at this point and she hid her body behind the door. She refused to let the social worker into the house and said she didn't want social services to be draconian and take her baby away. 
Three days later, Constance Martin telephoned the social worker to say she'd obtained private health care for the pregnancy, but she wouldn't say where. She said she planned to have the baby in hospital and there were no health concerns, so she didn't need to share any medical records. And child I.I. was subsequently born at full term with no medical concerns. Soon after the baby was born, the couple said they planned to leave the hospital and go to court for a hearing concerning their older children. They were offered a video link to the court from hospital but declined, so a social worker then visited them to explain the baby was not ready to be discharged. The couple were told if they left the hospital, this would be recorded in the social care record as abandoning their child. They were also told if they left, they would not be able to return to the ward due to Covid concerns. But they left without the baby and the next day Constance Martin tried to return to the ward and she became upset when she was refused entry because she refused to take a Covid test. And at a meeting later with social services she said she and Mark Gordon were naturalists and they didn't agree with any medical intervention with their child. Finally, Jack, we were told the outcome of the care proceedings. Yeah, that's right. So this was all decided in the end by the family court, which concluded ultimately the children would be adopted. And in essence, the judge said there were some key concerns. The court cited lack of preparation and arrangements for the birth of their children. As we touched on earlier, the court also said the couple had deliberately evaded the local authority when it was carrying out an investigation into the well-being of the children around the time of the incident of domestic violence. The judge outlined what she had concluded to be an incident of domestic violence between the parents and she said that around the same time Constance Martin, with Mr Gordon's support, had attempted to discharge herself from hospital despite being told it would put her life and that of her unborn child at serious risk. She also referred to the supervised sessions between the couple and their children and she said when the parents attended the contact sessions they were loving and attentive but she said they were not consistent. At one point, she said, there was a gap of almost four months because the couple missed the contact sessions. But the judge also said the couple were loving and they interacted well with all the children. Constance Martin was recorded as gasping in delight at the youngest child's change appearance. They played music to the baby, they passed it between them and they encouraged the babies to crawl. There were also examples of the parents comforting the children when they were upset, singing and dancing with them, helping to plant seeds in the garden, painting, crafts and creative play. She said there was often evidence that when the parents attended the sessions, they had put thought and care into planning their time with the children. They often arrived with presents that would usually lead to a game or they would bring music to play. But when they failed to attend the contact sessions, the judge said the children were distressed and unsettled and the impact on one child was obvious to all of the professionals, including nursery teachers who said the child was quiet and withdrawn, telling staff mummy and daddy cancelled again. When the same child was taken to the contact centre and the defendants failed to attend, the child was described as inconsolable and on occasion the children were recorded as hardly smiling or not reciprocating when being held or hugged by their parents. So having assessed all of the evidence before her, the family court judge said the detailed reading of the contact notes left her with a number of vivid snapshots of what could, if this were the complete picture, be a loving and integrated family. But she said she had to balance those findings against the risk of harm to the children by being exposed to serious physical violence between the parents. She also found that the parents' actions in seeking to avoid the local authorities' investigation increased the risk of harm to the children and she ordered all four children be adopted. We'll take a quick break there. Hold up. 
Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So after we've been taken through all of the social service evidence, we heard from Dr. Gaurav Atreja. Now, he's an expert in paediatric health and he was called by the prosecution to give evidence on the impact on a new baby of being out in the cold. He said the ideal temperature of a newborn baby was between 36.5 degrees Celsius and 37.5 degrees Celsius. And he said he would generally recommend to new parents that they keep the baby in a room of around 20 degrees Celsius. This was particularly, he said, in the first four weeks of a baby's life because at this age they're not able to regulate their own body temperatures very well. So he was then asked about what could happen in situations when the baby was kept for extended periods in colder conditions. Here's the exchange between Prosecutor Tom Little Casey and Dr Atreja. It's been voiced by actors. What are the risks to a baby at temperatures below 15 degrees Celsius? The baby can experience falls in body temperature and hypothermia, and you can see them quickly spiral into a level of being sluggish, not feeding, and becoming pale and mottled. The jury have heard evidence of varying degrees of temperature in the early part of January, and later in January with ranges of 10 degrees Celsius down to 5 degrees Celsius. Days it was higher and days lower. If you consider that same information in relation to the temperature in this part of England at this particular time, would they have posed a risk to life of any baby that was in a tent at that time? In a tent, when the weather was wet and windy, that presents a danger to any young baby's life. What danger does it pose, please? It can be fatal. It depends upon the temperature exactly. It can kill you. The baby may not want to feed. They may become more listless. If the baby's temperature drops further, it can become a more dangerous situation and the baby might become hypoxic. You have referred to things such as not feeding. Can I ask you about other matters such as colour of the skin? Does that become apparent? The initial symptom is bluish on the lips and the skin colour can become mottled before becoming pale. I've previously been asking you about temperatures in a range between 11 degrees Celsius to about 4 degrees Celsius. What about the position when the temperature gets even colder than that for a baby in a tent without any form of artificial heat? It is even more risky. It can lead to the symptoms I mentioned before more rapidly. It can also be fatal. In relation to wintry type weather, not below freezing, but lower than 4 to 11 degrees Celsius, 
What is the position in relation to the safety of a child and the need for any clothing? Of course, babies in that sort of weather condition need a few layers to keep them warm, especially the head, but that is not enough on its own. Why? The reason behind this is that they need a source of heat. They are incapable of regulating their own heat over a short period of time. They need a source of heat to keep them warm. So Dr Atreja said that he wouldn't generally advise a parent to take a baby out in that sort of temperature. And Mr Little asked him how easy it would be for a baby who has been outside in these conditions for two hours to get warm. If one is returning to a tent with no external source of heat, how can the body temperature rise back up again? The only option is if the baby is close in the tent with another human. But that is only if there is skin-to-skin contact. What about through a number of layers of clothing on the baby and a number of layers of clothing on the adult? It may not be sufficient. It is unpredictable. The doctor was then asked what might happen when temperatures fell below zero. Even if the baby is well hydrated and clinically well, if the temperature is sub-zero, that position is not sustainable for a long period of time. We're talking about a few hours. Is it possible to be more precise? Clinically, in my experience, leaving a baby for a maximum of two hours can be fatal. Then they turned to the issue of co-sleeping, and Mr Little asked what the situation would be if a parent fell asleep with the baby inside a jacket. Now this, you'll remember, is how Constance Martin told police she'd fallen asleep with Victoria when she woke up to find her limp and lifeless inside her jacket. At the time, she said, she'd been sitting cross-legged on the floor of the tent. What are the risks to a baby inside a jacket of a parent when the baby is asleep? Some parents choose to keep the baby in their jacket as long as they are awake. What about in relation to somebody who is sitting down in that position with the baby in the jacket on their lap? What is the risk to the baby? We recommend not to do this in the first couple of weeks. The mothers are still recovering and can go to sleep very quickly if they are breastfeeding. That can be dangerous. What risk does that create? If the mother falls asleep, she can bend over the baby and the baby can be smothered. The problem with a newborn baby is that the baby doesn't have very good head control. It is very important to maintain a head position in a neutral position so it can breathe without any obstruction. And if there are obstructions, what are the risks? It can cause lack of oxygen to the brain. The baby may not be able to breathe enough and can actually die because of this. Francis Fitzgibbon KC is the barrister defending Constance Martin and he wanted to ask Dr Atreja some questions of his own. Their exchange is voiced by actors. Is your recommendation to mothers of newborn babies that they should or should not breastfeed in a mother's lap? It is perfectly okay to feed when they are on the lap. There is some risk the mother may accidentally fall asleep. We advise mothers that they should be careful when tired or sleepy. The mother of a two-week-old baby is likely to be very tired, isn't she? That's correct. And breastfeeding is a very tiring thing to do in itself. That's correct. Is it correct that it is literally draining for a mother to do that? Yes. Does it make it more difficult for a mother to assume periods of rest for herself? The recommendation is that the mother should find time between breastfeeding. Would that be pretty difficult in the first weeks of a baby's life to establish that sort of pattern? That's correct. Can that happen anywhere, wherever the mother may be? Yes, it can. In a well-heated, comfortable room or outside in a tent? Yes. It is a phenomenon of being a tired, breastfeeding mother. That's correct. 
Mr Fitzgibbon also wanted to explore the evidence from the pathologist who had said in his report that it was impossible to determine that Victoria had died from hypothermia. But Dr Atreja said her body was so decomposed that it would not have been possible to demonstrate any cause of death. But Mr Fitzgibbon then asked Dr Atreja about an area he said the expert had not considered as part of his report, the microenvironment within the mother's clothing. It is an issue, he said, which was highlighted in a report by another witness in the case called Professor Peter Fleming. He described the microenvironment of the baby being inside a sufficiently warm item of clothing, in this case the mother's jacket, and he described that as a microenvironment in which the ability of the baby to thrive and survive is increased. That's debatable, in my opinion. The most recognised way of transferring heat to a baby is skin to skin. It otherwise becomes very unpredictable. On what basis do you conclude that? My own experience. We receive babies of low temperatures quite frequently. The most common reason for a baby to grow cold is because the room temperature is cold or the ward is cold. Does it depend on the amount of material that the baby is covered with and the type of garment? It is very difficult to say that the mother will be able to transfer adequate heat to the baby because there are lots of layers in between. It may be that the heat transfers slower, but it still transfers in a jacket. I disagree. On the issue of hypothermia and that a mother was feeding her baby and she fell asleep, if the baby was suffering cold stress and was on a path towards hypothermia, the baby would find it less easy to feed. Is that correct? Correct. The baby wouldn't be interested in feeding. If the baby was feeding well, is that an indication she was not suffering from cold stress? Yes, that is a very good indicator that the baby was well. That would be a sign that the baby was not hypothermic or heading towards it? That's correct. Now, before Dr Atreja was allowed to leave the witness box, Tom Little KC posed a final few questions. You were asked about guidance in relation to co-sleeping, and you were asked about the position on a chair or a sofa. But would you regard a mother sitting down, cross-legged with a baby in a jacket, in her lap, as safe co-sleeping? No. Why not? The baby doesn't have a good head control. They cannot move their head around to find space they can breathe better. When you fall asleep, you are more likely to bend over on top of it. So that's it for today. We're expecting the prosecution case to finish later this week and then it will be the turn of the defence to present their cases on behalf of Constance Martin and Mark Gordon. We should remind you that Constance Martin and Mark Gordon deny manslaughter by gross negligence. They also deny perverting the course of justice, concealing the birth of a child, child cruelty and causing or allowing the death of a child. We'll be back on Friday. In the meantime, you can follow us on X at The Trial Podcast and contact us on the trial at mailmetromedia.co.uk. You can leave a comment on Spotify or even send us a voice note on WhatsApp on 07796 657 512. Start your message with the word trial. See you then.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.